I sort of thought of it as like cliff notes for smart people. Sure, <laughs> I'll take that. I like that a lot. Um, so we grew, and then at a certain point, you're... <laughs> I think we've done at least three of those. We've definitely done the Federalist Papers. We've definitely done parking tickets. Dry humping's hard. It's very hard to explain dry humping in an intellectually satisfying way. Um, the, fact, the, big, the big problem is the data is poor. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. If it's your first time tuning in, if you are a virgin to this show, Employee of the Month is an opportunity, is a chance, is a resource, is actually just a really fun way to pass the time and hear about people's careers and get a glimpse into their lives. And I am so excited to bring you this episode. I also am still kind of high off 2019. I think because I lived in such a cave of despair, even though the world is still a mess, I have um, managed to be able to find moments of joy. I'm thankful for people who are finding meaning in their careers and still having fun. They're able to take their work seriously without taking themselves too seriously, which is really at the core of Employee of the Month, what it's about. It is possible to have a moral compass and still create and, I don't know, try to make the world a little bit of a better place. Before I bring you these wonderful interviews today, I do want to share a letter from fans. I, I'm always grateful for the fan mail. This one I thought was particularly funny. Uh, Nancy Knox. Nancy Knox wrote, I was just listening to Katie's interview with Peter Sagal, and I'm enjoying it. Thank you, Nancy. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Was it a joke? Nancy wrote, was it a joke when he, Peter Sagal, mentioned John Oliver and Katie said never heard of him? Because Peter Sagal took it as a true comment. If Katie hasn't heard of John Oliver, time for her to check him out. Well, Nancy, I think it's time for you to check irony out. Yes, I had heard of John Oliver. I adore him personally, and I also just love his show. And I, I'm going to recommend that in order to survive this world, to always give people the benefit of the doubt, assume in my case, since I'm 90% full of nonsense, that I am kidding, which was the case in that part. I wouldn't say it was a hilarious joke, but yes, uh, I do know who John Oliver is. In fact, I am a big fan of his. And it was also hilarious, I found in that episode, to have an NPR icon, Peter Sagal, speak about the perineum with me. That was what he wanted to speak about. And if you don't know what that is... Or if you do, you're going to want to listen to that episode. But you're only going to want to listen to that episode after you listen to this one. Speaking of people who get harped on, who don't always deserve it, are the youth, millennials. Some of my best friends are millennials. And as Trump shows us every, every hour, age is not necessarily a sign of maturity. But I was excited to have these two guests who happen to be youthful. We recorded this episode at the Kennedy Center. You're going to get to hear from Ezra Klein, who is one of the co-founders of Vox, and Sashir Zameda, who you may have seen on SNL or in Amy Schumer's film, I Feel Pretty. I just want to set the stage for you. So the Kennedy Center is an extremely regal and beautiful Center for the Performing Arts. And I was a privilege to be there and, and a thrill, particularly someone who grew up in D.C. And for those of you who are not at the live show, I often have an illustrator. And this time I was so thrilled to have Mike Collingsworth, who you may recognize his work from the animated series BoJack Horseman. And we had had all these rehearsals with the tech people. You're getting to see how the sausage gets made. Gone over it. The Kennedy Center has this extremely phenomenal staff. 
half and we went through rehearsal about, okay, we're only going to show the illustrations during the music and the award ceremony. These are all reasons why you want to come to live shows. Uh, we have one coming up actually at Sundance, January 27th, if you are in Utah or near it. But anyways, so we have an illustrator. The illustrator really is, is meant to show the illustrations during the award ceremony, which we have at the end, or during musical performances, which are a real big part of Employee of the Month, but so as not to distract from someone speaking. I want to hear from the guests that I'm interviewing. Well, Mike Hollingsworth is very funny, and I believe he had a masturbating squirrel or a masturbating dog. I'm not quite sure, but it meant that I was not able to get to all of the questions I wanted to with Ezra Klein because it's hard to ask about pay parity and the environment and political issues uh, when you have a masturbating squirrel or dog behind you. So I just want to set the stage for the listener that you have that in the background. And then if you can possibly be me for a moment as the host, and my mom is in the third row and she's talking during the interview. Who gets heckled by their mother? Apparently I do. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this. For those of you who don't know Ezra Klein, he is the Policy Wonks poster child. He started Wonkvlog when he was very young, back when blogs were a new thing. He has an incredible capacity to distill wonky issues and policy in a way that is vital for people to understand democracy. He was able to both appeal to people who are expert policy wonks and lay people like myself. So I'm thrilled to have Ezra Klein. He's also the co-founder of Vox. And we got to talk about his career because he's had a rise that continues to rise and rise and rise. So without further ado, here's my interview with the one and only Ezra Klein. I can't see any of you I know. Like, at all. It's incredibly backlit. That's <laughs> very strange. Naked. It's like a podcast. It, I know. It is. Does it feel more intimate now? It does. Yeah. We're the only ones here. Yeah. It's just us. Just and us and your band. I really want a house band now. We can follow so, you around at a rate. Be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's smart. That's I bet smart. you can pay more. <laughs> that is true. That is definitely true that Ezra could pay more. Um, Ezra, I do like that your shirt reinforces every stereotype about um, hipsters. You have so many birds on it. <laughs> A button down full of birds. So rarely do people look at the way I dress and think I'm a hipster that I'm thrilled this has begun this way. I will say we're in D.C., so the, the you know, set point, I would say, is Talbots, you know? So um, I saw, I grew up here. I saw a lot of khaki slacks. I want to say that not all of them had pleats. There were some people who were a little edgy, and they had some flat fronts. So I'm, I'm all for the hipster. Um, and in fact, D.C. in general has become much more artsy, I think, and, and hip. Since, since you've gotten here, probably due to you specifically. Yeah, yeah correlation is 100% of the time causation. And if you just track D.C. from 2005 when I came to now, both D.C. has gotten cooler and the country has gotten much, much worse. Yeah, that's true. And so you're welcome. So let's, let's start at the beginning. And is your father a professor of science? He's a mathematician. A mathematician. Yes. Okay. The key thing in my career is that I am good at math for a journalist. Okay. But extremely bad at it for the son of a mathematician. And so it was just a, a complete lateral move into a place where having grown up as a son of a mathematician yeah. would give me an advantage. 
and not comparatively make me humiliated. And so I found um, journalism where everybody's enumerate. And here I am. I, 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 yeah, because I wanted to find out between, and your mother was an artist, I just, mm-hmm. I, you know, to what extent they did or didn't influence your interest in going into journalism. I did not intend to be a journalist. I had never, it had never occurred to me to be a journalist. It was not what I was like going for in life. I started a blog in my freshman year at UC Santa Cruz. This was 2003 when that had nothing to do with journalism. That was just writing some shit on the internet. And it kept going and I really loved it. But it was one of those things where everybody around me saw that as a career path for me long before I ever did. Uh, I sort of tumbled backwards into it. I got into journalism through politics. My interest was in healthcare. It was in policy. It was in politics. I thought I might work in politics, work on campaigns or things like that. I cared a lot about and I still care a lot about things like healthcare and the economy and, you know, different things that I think that I think comprise justice and, and, and giving people a decent life. But journalism was a way to think about those things, a way to get people good information on them. It wasn't the thing itself. Yeah. How did you stumble into to this passion for healthcare? When I was at UCLA, the Center for American Progress in 2004 or five released a healthcare plan. And I had a blog and I decided for reasons I don't really know that I was going to like summarize what was going on in their healthcare plan. Like it just seemed interesting to me. Then in the comments of that, people started arguing about Canada and Great Britain and single payer. And I realized I didn't know anything about any of that. So I went to the UCLA library and I checked out a bunch of books on international healthcare systems and started writing about them. And I just liked it. You know, the more I got into it, the more it seemed to be the intersection of a lot of the key questions in, in American politics. On the one hand, there's almost nothing that could be done in this country to improve the lives of more people than to actually give everybody access to decent health care. On the other, the economic, thank you. On the other, America spends such an unbelievable shit ton of money on healthcare compared to everyone else yes. that if you could somehow get that under control, it would be transformative for the economy, for the federal budget. I mean, a lot of things come together in healthcare where if you could solve that, you would simultaneously have solved some of our biggest, um, I think, moral failings as a country, but also our biggest economic problems all in one go. So it ends up being a place where a lot of very, very, very interesting things come together. And I just liked studying it. It felt very human. It felt very strange and complex. It said a lot about American institutions and culture. I mean, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and never hit the bottom. I wanted to go back in time because I, I so envied and also admired you and Maddie Iglesias. Iglesias's. I'm, let me try to botch his name fully. Uh, no, I like it. I Michael like the way you say it. Iglesias. Um, <laughs> Maddie Iglesias, I just added a Y to Matt. I wanted to ask you about your relationship with him and how, how you guys became kindred spirits. Uh, so I, so Matt Iglesias, um, otherwise known as Matt Iglesias, yeah. uh, <laughs> at least here. So when I started a blog, I did so because I read the blog of this college student at Harvard named Matt Iglesias. Matt has just more like raw intellectual horsepower than anyone I've ever met. He just, you can ask him anything and he will come up with a fully formed, interesting thought on it instantly. It's a, it's a crazy capacity. He would write on his blog. And again, as a college student, something like 25 different posts a day, every day, 
but but for me, I read it and I thought, well, I can't do that. But but if this college kid can have a blog, I I can just write about politics on the internet too. And, and I do want to note just one thing about that story. I think a lot about that when people get into these fights that are, have now become common and are dismissing the idea of representation and where it's important. I would have never thought that I could write about politics if there hadn't just been like other people who seemed young and like in college writing about politics. So, and then I emailed Matt um, that, that I had this blog and he was very generous and linking to me for a couple of years. This was the early blogosphere and links for the currency. It's how you got readers. Yeah. I would say Matt is the core sort of mentor and intellectual influence. Certainly um, my early professional career. Like I learned to think reading his site and yeah. sort of like also then later talking with him a lot. Like I always try to give him a lot of credit because there's just absolutely no way I would be doing this work if not for his site, if not for, for the generosity he showed me, but also if not for just spending years kind of trying to keep up arguing politics with him. I learned more doing that than I ever learned in school. I want to fast forward because you, you were a prolific writer. You still are a prolific writer. Um, but so in, in comedy writing, when you get a television show, let's say you have a great idea for a TV show, you become a producer and you're suddenly managing a staff, whether or not you have any business managing a staff. Um, which is a long way to say when you started Vox, you were overseeing a staff and it grew and then you uh, stepped aside and decided to be an editor at large. Um, can you tell me if managing a staff had anything to do with that? What, what led it, to your decision? It had everything to do with that. Fucking stet now. <laughs> um, so... I had managed at the Washington Post. I had, um, by the time I left, uh, I think something like seven folks who were in different ways, you know, working, working within my group. And so I really loved managing actually at that point. And I continued to love managing at Vox until we grew to a certain size. And this is what nobody had told me and what I didn't know. There's a period of time, and I would say it's until we got to about 35, 40 people. When managing, at least for a journalistic organization, is really managing through the product itself. You're assigning articles, you're editing articles, you're talking to people about story ideas, maybe you're showing by example how you want different things done. Um, the, the management, I mean, of course you're managing people, but you're really managing people through direct work on the, the journalism they're doing. Vox, thank God, continued to grow. Uh, and so now we are well over 100 people. And I want to explain, for, for those of you who don't know Vox, Vox was set up, it was your brainchild. With, to, with, with Matt and, and Melissa and, Bell, are my yes, co-founders. To explain the news. And I, I sort of thought of it as like cliff notes for smart people. Sure. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, so we grew, and then at a certain point, you're... <laughs> I think we've done at least three of those. <laughs> we've definitely done the Federalist Papers. We've definitely done parking tickets. Dry humping's hard. It's very hard to explain dry humping in an intellectually satisfying way. Um, the, fact, the, big, the big problem is the data is poor. So you, you, want, you want to answer some of the core questions about dry humping, <laughs> But more, but more research is needed. Um, well, so at a certain point, you're managing the managers of managers. Yeah. And at that point, the questions are organizational design. The questions are both personnel problems and opportunities. And I had a particular weakness as a manager, which is that I never was willing to put down the other things I'd done 
which is to say, I didn't stop writing. I started podcasting actually, like after training myself to be writing every day. The hardest thing for me was that if I went home at the end of the day and I had not published a piece, I didn't feel like I'd gotten anything done. I wasn't able to reboot my own metabolism to absorb management and the rhythms of it as my main work. The other thing is that I'm like very, very bad at filtering other people's emotions out. And I found that while I can manage the stress of journalism pretty well, I wasn't able personally to manage a stress of managing very, very large numbers of people well. The amount of people who could be having a bad day, and that bad day was in some way my problem, (laughs) I found it really hard to put that down at the end of the day, at the end of the week. And I found myself getting really drawn down. And at the same time, I, I think something that I have been good at is know where I'm weak. And I had um, built, along with others, an amazing, amazing management team. And particularly, want to note here, uh, Lauren Williams and Allison Rocky. Lauren, yes. who's now our editor-in-chief, and, and Allison, who's our executive editor. And they're both people who, who, in the same way that I am very obsessed with writing and, and producing, they really think constantly about managing, about how to build an organization, about what is going on in the people around them. And they're much better at it than me. So I... I I both had the experience of feeling that I was no longer doing the thing I was best at or liked the most, but also having the the feeling that there were people there who would do it better because they wouldn't shirk some of the harder parts of it. On that note, Vox did a phenomenal piece on pay parity and what happens. And part of the reason that, you know, it's not just about women making 79 cents to a man's dollar. I was just curious because you're a new organization, because you have so many strong female voices, what have you done to deal with the pay parity issues? The big pay parity thing first is a motherhood penalty. If you look at the data, the, the, the thing that happens is that women have children and their pay diverges from both men and, and women who didn't. And so the first thing is, can you create an organization that is truly fundamentally at its core family friendly, that you've created a structure where not only can people take time off to have a children, both men and women, but they do not lose ground in their careers while that is happening. But as those divergences happen way earlier than that, I mean, like the fact is, is that women have been trying to negotiate for themselves for a long time and, and don't successfully, oftentimes they get rejected when they do try to so, so there is that. I, so, so there is that. I would never deny that discrimination is part of it. But the part that is within one organization that when we were looking at this and we sort of ran this data, that, that one of the things we had to solve for quickly, because when we launched Vox, nobody had had a child at Vox. In fact, they all were children. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, we have probably a dozen kids on staff. So okay. we had to make sure that the people who were having Did kids you just say were not. We have a dozen kids on staff. Yeah, we have a lot of child labor. <laughs> um, they work in the content mines. So, so we did a lot of thinking, one, about how to create a family-friendly um, organization. The other is to actually be watching what's happening inside your pay scales to see are there imbalances between men and women or folks of different races or, or other things you're looking at within similar job groups, right? And if they are, um, you have to either have a damn good reason why or figure out why it is really quickly. 
And then the third is to actually have a diverse organization, have a diverse leadership group, have people around the table who, you know, if you have a bunch of white men in a culture that's just based around white men, to your point, for instance, about how negotiations happen, that's where you're going to get into a lot of trouble with that. You're going to build a culture where the cultural fit is to display characteristics that are traditionally um, associated with white men. And so we worked really hard to not do that. I would say that when we launched, we were not where we wanted to be. I mean, you're never where you want to be ultimately, but when we launched, we got a lot of shit, and I think correctly, for being overly male. And one thing I'm very proud about at Vox is it's not only over 50% female now, but the leadership team is well over 50% female. So we did a lot of work um, on that, on, on race, on other kinds of diversity within the organization, and it made us a lot stronger, but that stuff is wrenching. It's hard. You have to pay attention to it constantly. It can get out of whack very, very quickly. And so you have to watch, like you have to take it, you have to take it seriously. It has to be a priority. It doesn't take care of itself. You can't just let that run on autopilot. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I also really want to hear about your book and, and what you are writing on, because I know you took Lee, I've been loving your podcast and, and loving to get to know you on it, and I want to recommend The Ezra Klein Show. Um, it'll be hard to find because you can't figure out why it's named The Ezra Klein <laughs> Show. Um, but it is a, a wonderful podcast, but you have mentioned on it a, a couple times that you are writing about tribalism, and I wanted to hear. Um, this is a separate slide that they brought. I was, I was at one point going to ask you about fan fiction and what it's like to have um, a short story about you um, called I Love You, Ezra Klein, which I, I didn't get to read, but did you, did you know this? I just found out about this recently. It's, wh wh which of these questions would you like me to ask? <laughs> Answer. I, I, I was going to ask about tribalism, but clearly uh, Frank, who is who's running these photo slides, really wanted to find out about I Love You, Ezra Klein, a short story, which I believe you can get. Um, uh, Frank, do you want to go to a previous slide so that people can know where to go if they want to get um, I Love You, Ezra Klein, the Kindle oh, edition? It is 99 cents within uh, the budget of freelance writers like myself who are not on staff at Vox yet. And it is about the Weinsteins, an intellectual liberal Jewish family on New York's Upper West Side who are perilously close to coming apart, 13-year-old Rachel's TV crush on journalist Ezra Klein inadvertently triggers the family catastrophe. <laughs> I guess I wanted to ask, you know, you sort of signed up to be someone who was writing about the news and then you became the face of the news. What is it like being a rock star in your industry? <laughs> It's not, like, it's not like being a rock star is my understanding in the, at first. Uh, I, or at least I hope being a rock star is, is more interesting. Um, it's strange. Here's, here's a part of it that I notice. I do notice that within my actual work, I come to represent things for people more than seeming just like a person to yeah. people. Yeah. So people, uh, like when I was a blogger and, and, and folks would write something about how I sucked, um, which was constant, they expected, it was sort of in dialogue with me right? They, yeah. they sort of expected maybe I'd read it and answer them. Like they were trying to convince me that I was terrible. Uh, now when people do that, which happens even more, they are, they don't expect me to read it. They don't, it's not a bet. They don't want to have a dialogue with me. It's like the artifact of Ezra, like, uh, like yeah. existing in like some simulacrum of me that is sort of like, uh, it represents depending on who it is, you know, 
maybe someone way too far to the left or maybe someone not nearly far enough to the left or maybe just Jewishness or it can be all kinds of things that, 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 that I represent for people that they don't like. But, but there is a way in which you, you kind of feel the moment when you're like a, like a person they see on television, not a person they feel they're, they're engaging with. And, and that's a, a strange and, and a little bit disorienting experience. Yeah. I can't relate, but I can understand. <laughs> I can empathize. I see you, and I hear you, and I get it. <laughs> and then sometimes you have um, a short story written about you that, <laughs> that, that, that really upends your whole sense of how people might be experiencing you when you appear on the Chris Hayes show. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, really quick, because I, I know we have to end, but I, I just wanted to know, you're writing about tribalism, I believe, yes. and political identities. How's the writing going? So it was going great when I was on book leave and then I came back and now it's not happening at all. So I got to figure that out. So the book is about the ways in which um, our people like to talk a lot about identity politics, but the, the main identity politics in America is Republican and Democratic. And over the past 50 years, what it means to be aligned um, with one of the parties or just hate the other party, which is true for a lot of people. They're an independent, but they just really dislike the other party. It's changed. It has come to merge in a way it really had not been as much as nearly as closely identified with, with racial and geographic and religious and 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 marital um, and cultural and ideological uh, identities. So we now have these sort of super identities that are breaking American politics. So I'm trying to trace the story of how that happened and what it's doing to us as a country. Well, I wanted to wish you luck along the way and, and got you some stuff. First of all, I got you a very rugged um, alpha male Park Slope co-op. Oh, excellent. Um, tote bag that you can take with you. I, I, I now, I'm now terrified of all tote bags. Because, because you got in a bike I accident with your tote up my bag wrist, yeah. in case there was any confusion about um, all the stereotypes you could reinforce. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> I, I decided to crash as if I were an advertisement for NPR. Um. Well, maybe this Buddha candle will help you relax oh, that's some nice. more. And I know that you're a vegan, so we got some, Russ and Daughters gave you some nuts and um, fruit. You also can go to any old age home with them, too. Um, <laughs> and I got you the writer's chapbook, which was just some witticisms from George Plimpton on, on writing. If you, if you get stuck and need, you know, a little encouragement, I really enjoyed this book a lot, the writer's chapbook. So I hope you do as well. I am so thankful for your writing on, on healthcare in particular. I, I think it's, it's really helped me and I think millions of other people who are struggling now to um, try and figure out a way forward that actually keeps us all alive and hopefully healthier. So thank you. Thank you. So great to speak with Ezra Klein, and I'm so thrilled to bring you my interview with Sashir Zameda. She does a ton of comedy stuff with Nicole Byer. If you're in Los Angeles, they are frequently performing there now, and she is a UCB veteran like myself. That's where she really broke out. She was also on Saturday Night Live, and I Feel Pretty, and it was just a, a joy to speak with her. Here's my interview with Sashir Zameda. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, I've been so glad that you made time because you've been performing this whole weekend. 
just yesterday. How did it go? Great. Okay, good. It was the uh, Riot Women in Comedy show in the concert hall, and it was very fun. And I hosted it, and yeah, felt really great. It was a nice moment. I love lady shows. Lady shows. Yeah, because they're just like nicer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like people get it. I don't yeah. know. The crowd yeah. feels better. The performers feel better. It's good. It's a kinder way to be in the world. Yeah. It's not too aggro, I guess. Not a lot of dick humor. Lots of vagina humor, which I'm also here for. <laughs> which, is, which can be a positive, I think. Mm-hmm. Because vaginas don't get enough humor. Exactly. Yeah. They get a lot of disrespect. Yes. And um, it's like boring terms, you know? Yeah. Um, speaking of vaginas, I'm kidding. I didn't have a segue for, uh, to ask you about your childhood. And Speaking of vaginas, I came out of one, and then I was a kid. From the top. Um, were, you, were you always a performer? Yes. I, I was like in church plays, and I was always in my church choir. So yeah, I was always on stage. And this is growing up in Indiana. Yeah, Indianapolis, Indiana. I was a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force, and we bounced around a lot. And then my parents split when I was nine, and so most of my life was in Indiana. Before heading to UVA. Before heading to UVA. And then I did more performance. (laughs) After I graduated from UVA, I didn't have, like, a plan. (laughs) As in being a 20-year-old? Yeah. Yeah. um, I thought I was going to work at Tokyo Disney. Like, that was my dream. At the time. Is this Disneyland in Tokyo? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I worked at Disney World in Orlando, Florida for a semester in summer when I was in college. And I was like, I'm already in the Disney family. (laughs) I'll work at Tokyo Disney. I I like that you thought of Disney as a family. Isn't that wild (laughs) that I thought that? They're not a family. It's a corporation. Uh, But... Uh, yeah, I auditioned. My first big audition was in New York, and uh, and that was for Tokyo Disney. And I was so green. I like didn't. I mean, the little actor things that I didn't know at all. Where it's like w- there was a dancing portion and a singing portion, and I showed up in like cute <laughs> yoga clothes because I was like, I want to look professional, but be able to dance. And everyone was like dressed up in heels and suits and stuff. And I was like, they're not going to be prepared for this dancing portion. But what I didn't know is that you dress up for the singing portion, and if they like you, they'll, they'll make you stay for the dancing portion, and then you change your clothes. <laughs> and I just had one outfit, and, and I didn't make it past the singing portion. Due to, due to your wardrobe? What's that? Due to the like, limited wardrobe? No, I just didn't know that I needed to bring dress-up clothes. <laughs> I just was I know, like... But- I feel like that's discriminating against someone who has a you know, sense that you shouldn't have too much. Clothing. I think there are many reasons why they didn't hire me. I don't think it was just because of the clothes. <laughs> but it is cool to hear about um, Disney because a, a lot of comedians did cruises and mm-hmm. still do cruises. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting to think of Disney as another, another possible outlet that I would never want to do. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a training job. I don't know. I'm sure I learned something that I'm still using. I did work, learn how to walk on stilts. Um, wow. and, I, and I have a pair of stilts in my closet. I haven't walked on them in a very long time. But uh, yeah, I was in Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade. And I also learned how to do puppets. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I was the Sebastian puppet, which is the hardest puppet to do in the Little Mermaid show. 
and uh, and I was a character performer, which was fun. And is that how you got into doing improv and stand up? No, totally okay. unrelated. No, I was always a fan of improv, and I was doing musicals, and then everyone there was like also auditioning for plays and stuff like that. And one of the directors that I had was like, "Oh, you should audition for the improv team because you're very funny." And I did. Didn't make it. But then I started my own improv group. And then the touring company from the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater came yeah. to my school. And I was like, I got to go wherever they came from, which was New York. And I went to New York, started working at UCB. And uh, yeah, that's where. And then I just like got obsessed with comedy. And I was like, I think this is all I want to do. Yes. Yeah. yeah you get- and now it's my freaking career. <laughs> well, speaking of which... I want to I want to show a small clip from your special Pizza Mind because it is it's so fantastic in showing you as a performer, as a singer, as an actor, as a writer, um, and how inventive and mercurial your mind is in all these fabulous ways. But I'd love you to set up the clip, and this is about how your mom feels um, about white people. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, my from my special Pizza Mind, I wanted to add lots of different elements of things that I love and I have like a, a part where I sing and dance I have a part where there's animation um, a little bit of sketch so this is the animation part and I have this joke where I talk about how my mom doesn't like white people sorry guys uh, okay. and I never we're, we're, we're we have reason. all white people everywhere uh, yeah. we we're like sorry yeah, we don't like us either they're like an we're acapella group of apologists <laughs> um, but I didn't understand because my mom never explained it to me she wasn't like this is why I feel this way she would just like be like white people and so I'd have to like make up reasons in my young mind as to why I thought she didn't like white people. Yeah. So this is that. <laughs> this is from Pizza Mind. Like this I imagine if I asked her like, mom, what do you mean when you say memories? She'd say something like, um, well, Sashir, when I was 11 years old, I went to the public library in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I was by myself. And this old white man came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder. And something about his hand on my shoulder and me holding the book sucked us into the world of the book. And we landed in this magical forest where the trees could talk to us and the dirt tasted like licorice. Now we didn't know where we were, so we split up to find help. And the old white man went one way, and I went another way. And I found this cave, and inside the cave was this big, beautiful dragon with a purple tail and glittery wings. And she spoke to me and said that she would take care of me if I just stayed there with her. I lived with that dragon for the next three years of my life. And on one of our morning walks, Crackle and I, that's her name, Crackle the Dragon, we saw the old white man, and... I don't know what kind of adventures he went through on this three-year journey in this magical land, but he looked totally different. He was shirtless, and he was ripped, and he was carrying a bow and arrow, and he saw me with crackle, and he thought I was in danger. And he shot crackle through the heart. And I cried and said, you don't know what you're doing. But... Shooting the dragon through the heart is what we needed to get back to reality. So we landed back in the library. 
And the old white man returned to his job as the Little Rock Public Librarian. And I started classes at a segregated high school. And that's why I don't like white people. You guys give Sajji your hand. You do such a phenomenal job of showing what it's like to be a child trying to sift through these issues. And then also uh, your imagination today. Thanks. Yeah, I want to do more with that idea. We'll see. I don't know. But I'm thinking about maybe doing more with animation in general and little girls going through times that may be hard. Yeah. Um, I know that you've talked a lot about SNL and and being on Saturday Night Live and and leaving. I actually just wanted to ask about um, your relationship with Amy Schumer because you're on... Inside Amy Schumer and some very funny sketches, and you were in her most recent film as well. Yeah. How did you two connect? I guess uh, Inside Amy Schumer was my first meeting of her, and I think maybe she saw a video that I did or or heard about me or something, and yeah, just put me in her show, which was so nice and wonderful, and she's always been very supportive of me and like always letting me be like the funny one (laughs) in this in her her scenes and. uh, yeah, it's it's always been really great. And, and so she also, I mean, I think also the producers and people involved with I Feel Pretty asked me, uh, but I think she had a lot to do with putting me in the movie. And it's always really great to work with her because uh, I like playing the straight man in scenes. And, and so when she's being ridiculous, I could just play off of that and, yes. and improvise. And yeah, we'll just pitch each other lines too. And it's always been very fun. I also wanted to ask, you sing, and you, you rarely get a chance to. I was wondering if, if we could hear you sing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I want a little more, a little yeah. more warm. All right. Amina. I'm going to look at the lyrics off my phone, because <laughs> I, um, I didn't memorize this song. And I don't have a real attachment to it. I just like it. And um, everything Amy Winehouse sings is in my vocal range. (laughs) Um, So yeah, if I look at the phone, that's why. Uh, But this is Tears Dry On Their Own. Clap or snap to you. All I can ever be to you is darkness that we knew And this regret I got accustomed to Once it was so right when we were at our heights Waiting for you in the hotel at night I knew I hadn't met my match But every moment we could snatch I don't know why I got so attached It's my responsibility you don't owe nothing to me but to walk away. I have no capacity. He walks away. The sun goes down. He takes the day, but I'm grown. And in your way, in this blue shade, my tears dry on their own. I don't understand. Why do I stress the man when there's so many bigger things at hand? We could have never had it all, we had to hit a wall, so this is inevitable withdrawal. If I stop wanting you, and perspective pushes through, I'll be some next man's other woman soon. So I play myself again, let's be our own best friend, I fuck myself in the head with stupid men. He walks away, the sun goes down, 
Bashir, I want to give you... So, the East Coast, we are, we are losing Sashir to Hollywood because she is off to do so many bigger and better things, but I want to give her some gifts before she goes. I didn't want to give you too much because I know that you are leaving um, and don't have room, but this is from New York, The Strand, um, a t-shirt. Usually I give books, but you're going to have too much in your suitcase. Russ and Daughters are sponsors from my people to yours. Thanking you. Here's some babka. And some packing tape and some Sharpies you're going to need it because she's moving this week. And a notebook because I hope you never stop writing. You are a gifted and, and really, really brilliant comedian. So thank you for your beautiful work. I want to thank my guests, Sashir Zameda and Ezra Klein. I want to thank Mike Hollingsworth. I want to thank the District of Comedy Festival and the Kennedy Center. It was fantastic to do the show with you all. I recommend if you enjoyed this please do check out my interview with Chris Jackson, who was also on the show. And he performed with my wonderful band. Thank you, Chris Shockwave-Sullivan, Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, Arthur Lewis, Eric Biondo. And thanks to all of you for listening. It means the world. Please continue to send letters. You can harp on my lack of irony. You can, you can say whatever. I'm just glad to hear from you. Uh, Sunday, January 27th, if you are in Utah or near it, come and see Employee of the Month live. I'm Katie Lazarus. If you want to reach out, you can go to at C-A-T-I-E-L-A-Z-A-R-U-S on Instagram or Twitter or wherever it is that you want to try to find me. You probably can. Thank you so much. Have a good one.